Wow. Wow, wow. Thanks, guys. That was incredible leading us in worship and grateful that you guys are here. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you're online, thanks for watching. If you're in the room, grab your Bible uh, and meet me over in James chapter 1. Last week, we started a new fall sermon series as we're going to walk through the book of James for the entire fall and up until the first, second week of November. And we want to resource you well, so we have these James journals that we give out um, for the first couple weeks, and Pastor Clayton in the back, he has them. If you don't have one, if you just raise your hand, we'd love to gift that to you so you can follow along with us. And hopefully, my goal is by the time I'm done here one day, we've done every book of the Bible, and you have a journal, like a commentary of the entire Bible. So grab that and meet me there. Um, One of the reasons that we have started this book of James study is because, well, the book of James is practical in nature. It's filled with so much practical wisdom that if you apply it properly, can be life transforming. If you didn't know this, James is like the New Testament proverb. It's it's the only book like it in the New Testament. There's 54 imperatives, meaning do statements, over five chapters. James isn't so much worried about telling you the why behind the what, like Paul, who takes chapter after chapter after chapter to explain the theology behind why he does what he does. James is just like, just do it. If you'll just do it, I promise you it will work. And there's so much there. So today we're going to look at two main truths that James starts with that are so countercultural, and yet there's so much wisdom packed into them. The first truth is this. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The second truth is that you are the only one to blame for your temptations. Those two truths run simultaneously, as you're going to see as we unpack this passage, that if you'll take those in stride, I promise you, can change your life. When I was growing up, when I was growing up, I liked to play dress up a lot. I don't know if you were this way. I mean, I was this weird kid that I would put on my Emmett Smith autographed helmet. Kid you not, nobody told me you're not supposed to do this. And I would put it on and I would go outside in football pads and a helmet and pretend like I was the Dallas Cowboys back when they were really good, and I would run around and hit things with my Emmett Smith autographed helmet. Then I would come inside, and I would put on a suit, like a legitimate suit that I got from my grandfather's funeral, and I would watch Law and Order and act like I was a trial lawyer taking down the bad guy. Like, I was a weird kid, all right? Um, but, But I had this thought in my mind that one day I was going to make it. Like, one day I was going to conquer this world. I was going to become a professional athlete, or I was going to become a sports agent, and I was going to have a Lamborghini, and I was going to get everything that this world had to offer. Anybody else ever do anything like that? Maybe you were a girl, and you wore or you dreamed about your wedding day and the white dress that you were going to wear, or you were a normal boy, and you put on Superman or Batman, and you became a superhero. Look, there's something pretty awesome about dreaming. There's something awesome about imagination. G.K. Chesterton, the old philosopher, said that one of the greatest travesties of our world is we've lost the ability to imagine. He said, we just take for granted that the sky is blue and that a chicken has an egg. And what we've lost the art of is understanding that God created this beauty. Imagination is an amazing thing. It's actually one of the most devastating things I think happens today is we've, we've taught our kids not to dream. They don't go outside and play in the sandbox and fight each other and have their rules. So we, we put up the guardrails and we don't let them have the space to dream. Dreaming is one of the most beautiful things ever. And yet, I wonder if we have dreamed about all the wrong stuff. I wonder if we've been conditioned to put on the wrong superhero. 
that the superhero that we wear is success more than anything. You see, there's something inside of all of us, even at a young age, that is grabbing for something more, right? That's that we want to experience the unimaginable, the unexplainable. We want to live for something bigger than ourselves. But somewhere along the way, we grow up, don't we? See, we lose our imagination and we settle for building it ourselves. We stop dreaming about what could be and we settle for what is. We settle for security. What I want to show you today, and this is going to take some work to do this in this passage, but the wisest thing any of us can do with our lives is not forget that we were designed for something more. That to settle for security or, or, or when life gets derailed, to, to live for this tendency of, of trying to just make it through the day tends to make us forget that we were designed for something more and then you begin to die a slow death inside. Now with that, there's, there's a better, better way. And James is going to show us or he's going to remind us what it is. And don't, don't forget the context, okay? If, if you remember last week, the book of James, the, these, these Christians, these new believers in around AD 40, just 10 years after Jesus' death, they're, they're experiencing something exciting. They, they've abandoned their old religion of Judaism to become the core team, if you will, to this, this, new, this new thing called Christianity, and it's exciting. Thousands of people are coming to faith. Lives are being transformed. Things are amazing. The world is changing right in front of their eyes, and then life happens. Life happens. Persecution begins to pick up. They become broke. They're broken. They're insecure, they're persecuted, and they start to question the goodness of God. They grew up, if you will. They stopped imagining what could be, and they settled for what was, and what was was something really difficult. So James writes them in that context to remind them, to, to give them a picture of what was, what's actually supposed to be happening, to stop settling for what is, and to continue to dream about what could be. Honestly, these these early Christians are a picture of all of us. So let me, let me show it to you. James chapter 1, verse 9. That's what we're going to pick up today. All right? Here's what James says. The very first thing he says is this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. By the way, again, context, they're lowly. They're poor. They're, they're struggling. So he's going to start by addressing that. And the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, James is about to get after one of the most important and yet countercultural truths in the Christian life. It's one of the things that most of us miss because we've been conditioned to see the world wrongly. Here, here's the point. Your joy isn't found in your stuff. I, I just started reading this book called The Happiest Man on Earth. It's, it's a phenomenal book written about, it's a memoir written by a guy, I think he was 101 years old, that lived through the Holocaust, and he was in an in internment camp in Auschwitz until he was able to escape, and he moved to Australia to live the rest of his life, and the point he made was the happiest life he had was when he took his dad's advice, and his dad's advice was this, you are more than your bank account. That was his simple advice. Son, you always need to remember life is more than your bank account. As a matter of fact, James is about to say that your stuff, watch this, is a massive disadvantage to you. Now, let me say this really quickly because I'm talking to a bunch of rich people. Yeah, you, you are rich, by the way. 
I don't, I don't know if you know that. By every measure, you are the richest people in the world and the richest people in human history. We have clean running water. We have plumbing. We have air conditioning. Y'all, we have multiple cars. We have good jobs. We live in metro Atlanta, which means a bad day here is better than most days on the planet anywhere else. Okay? So we just had to get there. Now, here's, here's the next thing. And this is really important. Wealth is not the problem, but it does create a problem. All right, that's going to be important as we digest what James is getting after. Wealth is not the problem, but it does create a problem. The problem is our reliance on our stuff, and that tends to happen subtly. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and worship our money. We don't spread it out over our bed, get down on our knees and pray to our money. Right? We don't sacrifice to our brand new cars. We don't do that. It's much more subtle. What happens is, is the more we accumulate, the less we pray because we can just handle it ourselves. Right? The everyday dependence on God makes us uncomfortable because we can just handle it ourselves. Like, I don't know about you, but in my life particularly, I tend to exhaust every resource at my disposal before I pray. And then after I pray, I tend to find more resources before I ask you for help. And James is about to show us the, the paradox or, uh, that is so countercultural and yet super important. You, you ready for it? The goal to a wise life is neediness, not abundance. Watch this. The first thing he says, and I'll underline it for you, is he says this, let the lowly boast in his exaltation. That word lowly there, man, it means poor. It literally means poor. He's claiming that the poor have a huge advantage in this life because they've, if, if they will learn to boast in their poverty. It, it seems ridiculous. But he literally says, let the poor brother boast in his poverty. By the way, James isn't the only person to say this. You know that, right? In Jesus' very first sermon, he quotes Isaiah 61.1. Here's what he says. The very first thing Jesus says as he unrolls the scroll is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Even in the Sermon on the Mountain, Luke chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. See, in God's kingdom, there's a higher value than wealth and comfort in its dependence. It's dependence. Like I told you last week, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey's famous quote. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they'd ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Y'all, you realize Jim Carrey wasn't the first person to say this. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the wisest person, the richest person in the world, says it's like all chasing after the wind. The reality is, is that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The systems that operate this world don't work and there are cracks that continue to show as culture fragments because we pursued the wrong thing. Have you ever heard where the word sincere comes from? It's a fascinating word. It's actually a compound word that has two Latin words that go together. Sin, literally meaning without. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, without. And seer, meaning wax. It, it means without wax. In the old ancient world, what would happen is you would have a potter who would cultivate this pot, and afterwards it would dry up, and these, wax, uh, these, uh, these cracks would begin to form, and they would put wax in it and then paint over it so it looked beautiful and perfect. 
And then they would sell it in the market, and it looked amazing until you put it on your window seal, and it was 110 degrees outside, and the wax melted away, and it showed all of the imperfections in it. Y'all, that's what society feels like whenever we fill our lives with the stuff that looks like it's really good, and yet it never gets at the heart of the problem. The cracks in the foundation begin to show. That's what James wants you to see, is that our life, our culture, when it's built on accomplishments, is just wax that fills the gaps of what's really needed. That's why poverty, in this example, is actually to your advantage because it helps you to create dependence, not just filling the gaps. Look, you don't need, by the way, you don't need to feel bad about having abundance. It's just a reality of life. Okay, I'm not here to pick on that. What we need, though, is we need to recognize that we have abundance. Because most of us, we just compare ourselves to somebody who has more. Right? And then we all just think that we're like lower class. The reality is no. We're the wealthiest people that have ever lived. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you recognize it and you cultivate dependence. Check this out. The person who doesn't have anything is someone who is naturally needy. Right? They, they tend to be positioned better to look to God and rely on him. And that's to their advantage. That's why James says that the poor person should take pride in his humble estate because it positions him in a better position to look to God in dependence and see the beauty of what God provides for them. Now here's why that's super important, again, and why it's super hard for us to grasp. None of us in this room are poor. None of us. So we are at a huge disadvantage if we don't get what James says next. All right? You ready? I underlined it for you. Second paradoxical statement that James says is this, and the rich in his humiliation. Here's what James is saying. The rich should take pride in their lowest state. That's literally what he's saying. That might sound crazy, but it's actually super important. Here's what he's telling you. The only way to humble yourself is to realize that you actually are needy and your greatest need, watch this, is that you don't need. So you have to force yourself to become dependent on God. You have to choose to see your lack of neediness is the fact that you really don't need and then you have to force yourself to understand that it actually disadvantages you and realize that you really are needy. Y'all, it's like this. The only example I could come up with is like, we're house poor. You know what I'm talking about? When you're house poor, you spend all your money on the 7,000 square foot house and the taxes came in and it was raised up because all the houses are, now you can't pay the taxes so you don't even have a couch to sit on, but you got a big old house. That's what, that's what James is kind of saying. James is kind of saying that we are rich in some way, but, but he actually uses the word here, he says you're poor rich. That, that's literally in Greek what he's saying. That the poor are rich poor, and the rich are poor rich. And here's why. Notice in verse 9. He names who the poor are, but he doesn't name who the rich are. The poor are the lowly brothers. They're the believers. And, and, and they have access to God in their poverty. It's like this. Jesus even says it in another place on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Y'all, that's the ultimate aim of the Christian life. It's, it's not that we have to become physically poor. It's that we need to empty our spirit of the wealth that we provide for ourselves so that we become needy in our spirit. The, the truth is this. Truth is, the wisest thing that any of us can do with our lives is cultivate a neediness in our spirit. But one of the things I've learned 
is none of us really want to be poor in spirit. Matter of fact, we really don't want to be rich in spirit either. We kind of just want to be middle class in spirit, right? And the reason why is because middle class in spirit gives the impression that we need God, and yet it never actually looks to God for anything. It's what cultural Christianity tends to look to. And Kerry Newhoff, I think he said it best, he says, only humility can get you out of what pride got you into. You know, one of the greatest enemies of neediness is our wealth because it makes us independent. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you the last time I prayed to God where my next meal was going to come from, right? We aren't sitting at home praying, God, would you provide my meal or we're going to starve to death. No, I just get in my car and I drive over to Publix or that ridiculously big Kroger, right, that sells clothes and stuff, and I buy whatever I need. And, it, and listen, if, if I'm getting real, like, tricky. Uh, here's what I do. If it's not a Saturday, I go to Costco and I buy 19 gallons of ketchup just because I can. Right? And that's what we do. I pay my bills. I save for retirement. And I never have to rely on anybody for anything. And here's what ends up happening. We end up robbing each other of the joy of serving one another. Right? We, which is one of the greatest tools in the Christian life for growing in humility. It's, it's, it's us forcing ourselves to let one another be a part of our lives. We never, we never serve each other, nor do we serve, because we don't need anything. And look, I, I know, I know for many of you, your very first reaction is this. Neediness is a negative word. I don't want to be needy. Like, need, needy people aggravate me. They cling to me, right? That's not quite what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about letting people know what's going on in your life so they can carry your burdens with you. I'm talking about cultivating vulnerability, dependence on one another. Honestly, spiritual neediness on God and healthy dependency on one another. Any of these things can be taken to the extremes and they become really unhealthy. That, that's not what we're talking about here. But here's what we know is the system, if you will, of this world is rigged for you to fail. It is built a dream of complete independence, and if you aren't careful, you are going to get so successful in this world that you aren't going to need anything from anyone, and that will put you at a huge disadvantage, and here's why. Because, James says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and it scorches in heat, and it withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's all temporary. That's why, y'all, too many of us are living for the temporary at the expense of the eternal, and we're making this earth our heaven at the expense of making heaven our earth. The way to live in this world is to see that your possessions are temporary, and temporary things make terrible gods. You get that, right? That the thing you rely on most for your security and happiness is your functional God. It's your functional God, and James says that your stuff makes terrible gods. So the rich, i.e. all of us, have to force ourselves to pursue Jesus, not our stuff. And we have to choose to become poor in spirit. Watch, watch. James is going to give it to you in the next verse. The next verse is the proverb. Here it is. He's setting it all up for this. Blessed. By the way, that word blessed, it's the same word you see in Psalm chapter 1. Happy is the man blessed. It's this happiness. It's this transcendent joy. Happy is the man who remains steadfast. That's the same word from last week, remember? To remain under is the Greek word there. Steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. So the happy man, the happy man is the one who remains under the trial, who forces himself to be dependent. See, that's the key. The key to remaining steadfast is to keep going. And at the end of it, what you see is that God will give you the crown of life. That, that's the crown that we should live for. All right, if I completely lost you, let me recap real quickly what's going on here. In this world, there are systems at play. And it's the same systems that were at play when James was alive. It's the same systems that have always been at play. And they are counter, um, they, 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 they work against each other. The first system says this. The world system says work really, really hard. Work really hard and become independent so that you can become your best you. God's system says humble yourself, empty yourself, become needy, if you will, in a healthy way, and walk through a lifetime of neediness so that you can receive the greatest gift of all, God himself, the crown of everlasting life. See, at the end of the day, the goal is humility. It's humility. And you can be humble with a lot, and you can be humble with a little. The key there is reliance on God. I love the way Tim Keller talks about humility. Tim Keller says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Somebody asked me, didn't somebody else say that? Yes, probably. But by the time you've said it four or five times, it becomes yours. So the next time we say it, I love the way Billy, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Are you practicing neediness? That's the key to the good life. It's an upside down kingdom. It's choosing to empty yourself of your own reliance and forcing yourself to rely on God. Y'all, your greatest trial in life is most likely your success. Let that sink in for a second. Have you ever thought about that? That it might be the fact that your life is pretty easy, that it puts you in a position to where you actually miss God because you never cultivate your neediness on God. Can I give you a couple ways in our culture here to cultivate neediness on God? They're going to be revolutionary. Number one, start serving. Start serving. I'm just telling you, there's nothing more humbling than serving here. Why? Because when you walk into those doors of this church, you're no longer the CEO out there. You're a door holder. You are wiping kids' behinds. There's nothing more humbling than that. Right? It doesn't really matter your position in the world, what you are in this place in the kingdom of God as a brother or sister in Christ. The most practical reason that you should serve is because it helps you practice humility, right? It puts you in a position to be like Jesus. You realize the king of heaven took off his outer garment, got down on his knees, and washed the feet of his disciples. Now, do you know what first century Palestinian feet walking on dirt roads look like all the time? They look like alligator teeth in mud. I'm not a feet person. And I cannot imagine the horror of looking at Judas' toes, knowing he's about to throw you on a cross. And yet, that's what our God did. He emulated serving, serving in the lowliest position. For some of us in this room, we've succeeded so much that we've removed ourselves from ever having to be served or serve other people. We built in a system for you to serve, not because we need more volunteers, but because you need to volunteer. Number two, Go on a short-term mission trip. Take your vacation time, take your money, sacrifice something, and go on a 
short-term mission trip. Two things will, I think two things will happen. The first one's really simple. It will expose you to how the rest of the world lives. It gives you an extreme amount of empathy to experience how the rest of the world lives. You know, this spring break, I'm planning on, and I'll give you more information, I'm planning on hosting a family trip to the Dominican Republic. And because I want my kids to see what life looks like there, and I'd love to bring you along with me. So if you're interested in that, like, let's go together. You see, because one of the things that blows my mind, one of the things I don't like about where we live is my kids think that where we live is normal, right? My, my four-year-old went from asking for a toy car for his birthday to a four-wheeler. Y'all, a four-wheeler. That's not normal. I'm like, who in their right mind thinks that I'm going to buy you a four-wheeler when you're four? Well, my friends have one. Or, or I hear this all the time. I'm hungry. Right, my kids, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Go get an apple. I don't want an apple. You obviously aren't that hungry, are you? We had to cultivate neediness. I remember sitting in Kenya with Clay and Amy Churchill, and we walked in this mud hut. I'm telling you, it was like the most disturbingly bad place I'd ever been. And their son walked in who had Down syndrome or something of that nature, and their situation was awful. And Clay and Amy gave them clean water. And the joy on their face, the crying, the tears to say that we no longer are going to die was incredible. I'm telling you, they were the poorest people I'd ever seen, and yet they had more wealth than most anybody I'd ever encountered. Sometimes, sometimes you need to experience that so that you can see, you can see that something, something beautiful is happening. You see, the, the, what, what ends up happening, by the way, the second thing that you'll get by going on a short-term trip Everybody I know that goes on a short-term trip thinks they're going to give something away. And everybody I know that goes on a short-term trip realizes that they actually went to receive something. They, they, they got to experience joy in a deeper level. Uh, you know, we say this around here, short-term trips create long-term disciples because it changes us just as much as we give anything away. Here's the third one. Start giving. Start giving. If you want to practice neediness, start giving you'll realize just how tied you are to your stuff when you start giving it away. Like every year, Allison, and for some odd reason, goes through like this cleansing period of our house, okay? And, and she, for some reason, she wants to clean out all my stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I'll wear that. She's like, you haven't worn this in high school. It's like, it doesn't matter. Guys, style doesn't change. Don't touch my stuff. I'm a hoarder, y'all. Like I am a hoarder. Do you realize I, I only owe two suits? Because unlike Clayton, I don't really dress nicely that often. Um, but I have, I have a wedding and funeral suit, and I have a fat suit. I'm not kidding, because one day, if Fat Billy ever gets resurrected from the grave, I need a suit, and I'm not going to go buy another one. I, I, I hold on to my stuff, and yet, and yet, when I give it away, something beautiful happens. Listen, let me ask you, what's your greatest commodity? Is your greatest commodity time? If you'll give away your time, what you'll find really quickly is that your time has become a taskmaster over you. Is it money? You'll become generous, and when you become generous, what you'll see is the joy is actually found in being a part of something bigger than yourself. I'm telling you, if you'll do those three things, start serving, go, and start giving, what you'll find is in the long run, you'll become freed from this rugged individualism that is so treasured here, and yet it's killing us like death from a million paperclip cuts. Y'all, here's the big idea. You don't just have things, things have you. 
And right now, there's a war being waged over your soul for your satisfaction. Don't be fooled. The blessing is in the dependence, not in the stuff. All right, we got to speed up. Verse 13. Everybody tells me, you got to slow down when you talk. If I do, we won't get through this. Um, <laughs> let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's the second major point in the first chapter. God is not the source of your temptation. You are. Let me show you this really quickly. Notice that word tempts, temptation, in verse 13. You know what's fascinating about that word? It's the same exact Greek word as trials in verse 12 and verse 2. And yet, they have two different meanings. Here's what he's trying to show you. They're connected, though. Temptation is different than trials. Trials are external factors that come from the outside that God brings forth. But the nuance here is how you react to those are your temptations, and they are your responsibility. Let me say it this way. You can't control what's going on around you, but you can control what's going on in here. You hear what I'm saying? Take, take note of this. James says your own desires, too, by the way. Here's why that's important, that word own. It's because of this. Although temptations are common to all of us, they're specific to you, which means the things that tempt you might be sin to you, but they might not be sin to your brother or your sister. So worry about yourself. The question is, what is going on in my life? What desires do I have that take my eyes off of Jesus and put them onto my own circumstances? Because here's the lie. When you sin, the lie is this, that God is not all that good and sin is not all that bad. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. A trial might be getting diagnosed with cancer. A temptation is cursing God and being mad at him when the diagnosis comes. A trial might be marital conflict. The temptation is to run to pornography or to another addiction or to alcohol whenever those temptations come. You see, a trial is an external factor, and the temptation is how we respond. The temptation is that we always look into the face of our circumstances and believe the lie that God is not all that good and sin is not all that bad. But here's the wisdom. Because in James' context, the religious persecution was the trial. The temptation, right, was to curse God, to get mad, or to fight back. And the wisdom is this, is every trial in life is going to move you in one of two directions based on how you respond. You will either move closer to God, the crown of life, or you'll move into sin and death. See the directional pull? The directional pull is this. How you respond to trials will either lead you closer to God or they will lead you farther away. So if dependence on God is, is the key, then our temptations are birthed from within us. The trials are there to bring us closer to God, and yet these desires, these unhealthy desires are birthed within us. Listen, temptation to sin is always this. It always promises a little bit of pleasure, but brings a whole lot of pain. In the moment, it feels really good, but it brings a whole lot of pain. Now, the next major thing that James is going to say is this. The evil that we experience is because there is a war going on within us. It's being waged within us. James chapter 4, we're going to talk about this extensively. James wants you to know just how sin works. Sin comes from within. Just like John Owen said, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. 
This is super important because the problem is not out there. It's in here. Don't miss what James is saying. I'm going to highlight it for you as we walk through. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Can I tell you the, whole, the hard truth? is The only reason that you sin is because you desire to do so. Y'all, at the end of the day, you always do the thing you want to do most. Even secular psychologists will tell you this. They will tell you, they won't use the word sin, but they'll say craving starts here, and then you get a cue, and then the next thing you know, you develop a habit, whether it's good or bad. Something inside of you desires something so badly that you build a system to have it. Man, this is why you so easily get addicted to pornography, right? When you desire something that, and your desires outweigh your perceived consequences, you figure out a way to get that craving and you don't do it because of something that's going on around you. You do it because at the end of the day, that's what you want to do. And here, let me just get real practical. It might just mean that you need to change your environment. By the way, some of the best, some of the best advice I could give you if you're struggling with that is just go to bed with your wife every night. And if you're single, put some screen, light, screen time limits on your phone with a password protection and give the password to somebody else because we all know that the greatest time that you're temptation, tempted is at night. But the point is this, it's always your fault. It's always your fault. It's like a kid that goes in for an algebra exam and, and he didn't study, didn't prepare, and then he's mad at the teacher, right? The stupid teacher gave us his test. The teacher wouldn't give us his test, I wouldn't have failed it. No, the, the test just revealed what you didn't do. At the end of the day, it's always our fault and here's why that's so important. Here's why that's so important. Just because life circumstances are stacked against you doesn't mean that is the justification for sin. Like, I know that a lot of us, some of us grew up in a home that put us at a massive disadvantage. Maybe your, your parents were abusive or they were absent. Like, I get that. Maybe, maybe things were really hard, but y'all, there are so many sins out there that are birthed out of our own desires, and those desires, even if they're created by the environment that we're in, they're not justifiable. You, you realize that understanding that it's your fault. Watch this, watch this. This is so important. It actually gives you dignity. You want, you want me to tell you why? Because you're not just an animal. You're not just a robot programmed by the nature and the desire and the environment that you grew up in. No, you have a choice. As hard as that is, you have a choice, and that gives you an extreme amount of dignity. Listen, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but you still have a choice. You are not entrapped by your circumstances or your environment. There is a way out. Let me just say this. If God is convicting you, if you're feeling that tension right now, if you're carrying something, listen, it's God's grace and he's not ashamed by you. If you're still breathing, it's not too late. God loves you. Look at verse 14. But each person, again, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Here's how it works. It starts when desire begins to take root. Now, now, James uses a really interesting word for enticed and desired. He, it, it's actually a, a, a sexual word that means to be seduced by. It, it's important because in Greek, and I don't know if you knew this, there's, there's three verb tense, or just uh, case tenses that, that we don't have in English. There's the, there's the feminine, there's the masculine, there's the neuter, neutral. And, and the word desire is actually in the feminine form. And, and, and what he's trying to show you is this. It's, it's, it's an important picture. He, he's saying that, that your desire, picture this, when you give into it, gets pregnant. And then eventually it gives birth 
and then the end result is death. It's a, it's a fascinating, beautiful picture of what God is showing is beauty of his creation is that God, God uses creation to multiply life and yet sin distorts and gives birth to death. You've got to grasp what he's saying. It's massively important because he's telling you that massive things aren't the things that kill you. It's little things that you let go. And they grow bigger and they grow bigger and they grow bigger until death comes. If you've been married for any length of time, you get this. Most of your biggest arguments have nothing to do with anything big. They're mounting over a period of time until the straw breaks the camel's back. One commentator said it like this. There are three stages to temptation. He says this. It's one suggestion, two experimentation, and then three consent. And by the time you consent, it's too late. So James says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The natural maturation process of sin, if we don't control it, our desires is death. And here's the point. Sin, according to the Bible, is not bad things. It's not, it's not, I'm sorry, let me say it different. Sin, according to the Bible, is not doing a bunch of things wrong. It's actually spiritual adultery. Tim, Tim Keller, he, he says that word desire is the most difficult word in the New Testament to translate because it, it, it actually, it's the essence of sin. The, the word there, if you're nerdy like me, it's epitomia. Epi, it's, it's actually the root word for epic. He, he's telling you it's an epic desire. It's, a, it's an over-desire. That's what sin in its essence is. It's taking a good thing and needing it too badly. It's relying on it too much. It's like what idol worship is. Idol worship is normally taking a good thing, ultimating it to an ultimate thing, and then it becomes a God thing. You see, it's, it's not that there's a problem with our money. It's that we just want it too badly. Listen to what he says. Tim Keller says, sin isn't necessarily that we want bad things. It's just that we want things too badly. Right? It's not that we have a problem with success. It's that success has become our main goal in life. So with most things, I, I, tell our, I tell our staff this all the time, set your fence far enough back so that if you fall over the fence, you don't fall over the cliff. Let me give you an example of how this works morally. So I don't travel alone. Is traveling alone sinful? No. Is it wise? I don't think so. So what we do is we build in a budget that I bring somebody with me. Why? Because I don't want my desire... If, if I fall off of my desire, that I fall off the cliff, right? And the cliff is bad, bad things. So I set my fence far enough back so that I can create a good, healthy system that it doesn't happen. For some of you, again, that means you might want to change your environment. If, you are been, if you're tempted by your phone late at night, well, move your phone. Quit screen time limits. If food is what you turn to to console yourself, get the ice cream out of the house, Right, I'm telling you, half of the battle is eliminating the temptation by changing the environment. And yet, that's not going to change your desires, but it will go a long way to help. Now, with that in mind, let me wrap up by showing you how to overcome those desires. Here's what he says. It's cultivation, not suppression. Since we're moving into the fall, let me say it this way, since it's football season, the best defense is a good offense. Right? And the way you do that is you train yourself to see God properly. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Y'all, the context that these early Christians is that they're struggling. 
They were despised and rejected. The world did not look to their faith, and most of them were poor and struggling, and now they are vulnerable to believing some pretty crazy stuff. Here's the key. When you take your eyes off of your God and you put them onto your circumstances, that's where desire begins to take place. And when desire is there, it lures you in like bait for a fish. And when that lure gets stuck into your mouth, it drags you through the mud until you're eventually caught. See, God is good. He's a good God that has good gifts and he's raining them down from above. The construction of this sentence makes it to where James is saying that God's gifts are total and perfect. Do you believe that? That's the key. Because until you force to focus your eyes on God and off of your circumstances, every single time you will get this wrong. Godliness, the goodness of God, is the gospel. Think, Think about it. Think about what the gospel says about you. That God was so committed to you and to your relationship that he put on flesh, was beaten half to death and crucified to save you. What other thing in all of creation is as committed to you as Jesus is? See, so you have to look up. You have to look up and see him differently. Literally, what James is saying is look up, go outside, go outside tonight and look up at the stars of the sky. See the Father of lights, the one who put it all in motion. Look up at the moon and the stars and look up and see that he is constantly coming and showering you. As a matter of fact, it says coming down, if you go to the next slide, coming down from the Father of lights. That word coming down, if you're like me and you failed English class 17 times, it took me a long time to get this, it's in the present active participle. Here's all that means. It means it's continually happening even right now. It's never ending, never failing. God continually comes down to shower you with his good gifts. Don't believe the lie whenever things get hard. And then take note of verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's goodness isn't just coming down, it's coming in. Yo, that's the gospel. The gospel is the goodness of God that he made the word of God come alive inside of you by the spirit of God so that you can live for a different kingdom. He created a new identity, a new family. That's what that first fruits of his creatures means. A new family in you through Christ. You are the first fruits of his coming harvest. In Christ, you aren't poor. See, you aren't beat down. You are rich in your inheritance is literally the crown of life bought at the price of Jesus Christ. See, as sin gives birth to death, the Spirit of God inside of you gives birth to life. And James is showing you that the key to joy in life is where your eyes look when your circumstances are hard. Thomas Chalmers, a great Puritan pastor, listen to what he said, the only way to break the hold of an object on an individual is to show the individual something more beautiful. If you want to live this life, the most practical thing James could tell you, if you want to mitigate temptations, the most practical thing that he can tell you is to become more passionate about Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Y'all, if you put it scientifically, he's literally telling you to create new neural pathways that create new feedback loops. Or the way that Paul says it is this, renew your mind. It's the renewal of your mind through worship. Over and over and over and over again, the key to wisdom is changing your system for the craving. And your craving can't be this world or its success. It has to be your God, the founder and perfecter of your faith. If you look for a better lover, he's there. A better friend, he's there. His name is Jesus. 
His name is Jesus. You see, the Christian life isn't about doing the right things. It's about giving yourself to the goodness of God. It's about experiencing a freedom of knowing Jesus. Joy, unspeakable joy, is found nowhere else but realizing your neediness in God and coming to Him. Look, I want to end this message by doing something maybe just different than we've ever done. But I actually want us to receive. Maybe just where you're at, you actually put your hands out in a posture of neediness. As I pray over you, would you do that? Would you stand with me? Would you put your hands out to receive and just, even in your own words, you can, you can mimic my prayer, you can pray your own words. Just pray, God, I want to be needy. I want to be needy in a healthy way, in a way that never it feels bad about the blessings that you've given me and yet doesn't look to those blessings to be my God. I want to receive from you the crown of life that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to love you and I want to serve you. God, would you take my empty hands and fill them with your presence? Would you make them heavy with your love? God, would you make my eyes look up, look up to the hill where I see your goodness and presence and grace? Would you remind me, God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Help me to receive it with humility and submission. To literally lay down my life to receive the one that you have for me. God, I pray that you would do this. Holy Spirit, fill me up. Jesus, give me more of you, I pray in Jesus' name.